It's been called a logistics masterpiece. It was also the British Army's last campaign in North America. Today, I'm joined by Canadian author and historian Paul McNichols to talk about the Red River Campaign of 1870. Paul has written a book about it called Journey Through the Wilderness. It's a fascinating and little-known part of British military history, but it is very important. The campaign helped to solidify the country we now call Canada, and it was also the first independent command of a man called Sagan Wolseley, an officer who went on to become a field marshal and commander-in-chief of the British Armed Forces. And by the way, guys, if you want a 20% discount on Paul's book, Helion are very kindly given as a code to allow you to do that. So stay tuned till the end of the episode and I'll give you that code. Also, if you're interested in the Anglo-Zulu War, who isn't, then stay tuned until the end as we find out if James Langley Dalton, who famously won a VC at Rourke's Drift, was actually part of the Red River campaign, as is usually claimed by historians. In fact, it was a discussion on that issue in my YouTube comments that led Paul and I to first speak. Happy New Year, guys. I hope that the holiday period is treating you well. Today's guest, Paul McNichols, is a lovely guy who really knows his stuff. I started off by asking him to give us the background to the Red River Expedition. The Canada geographically that we know today is not the Canada that we're talking about in 1869 when, when this event kicks off. Four of, Brit of Britain's North American colonies have formed the Dominion of Canada in 1867 and now it, and it now consists of five provinces. But it's, it's quite a small entity by comparison with what Canada becomes. And in 1869, the Canadians are looking to take over the Hudson's Bay Company's lands, which are, which is the vast majority of what today we would know as Western Canada. So um, the, what happens is the largest settlement uh, in the Hudson's Bay Company lands is the Red River Settlement, which is the modern day site of Winnipeg. And there's about 14,000 people there. Uh, almost half of them are French speaking people of mixed ethnicity known as the Métis. And they are a bit uneasy about the Canadian takeover. They're, they're looking for uh, guarantees uh, for their land rights and their culture, and they're not forthcoming from Canada. And so they decide to take matters into their own hands and make the demands directly to the Canadian government. And that's what triggers the unrest at the Red River settlement, which ultimately results in the dispatch of the Red River Expeditionary Force in 1870. Okay, so to, to give people a bit more perspective then, the Hudson Bay Company, who owned all that land, would that be the equivalent of, say, the East India Company or, or something like yeah. that? It's a company, the, the, charter, uh, the charter of the Hudson's Bay Company dated from 1670, when Charles II uh, gave... Uh, uh, monopoly trading rights to all lands uh, within the Hudson's Bay watershed. He, he probably had absolutely no idea of the scale of territory he had, you know, he was talking about, but we're talking about, you know, thousands and thousands of square miles. And over time, the Hudson's Bay Company, uh, in that territory that, uh, that was formed, the original charter was known as Rupert's Land or Prince Rupert's Land. Uh, and over time, the company expanded into other parts of the North American interior as well. 
uh, and that became known as the uh, the Northwestern Territory. So you're talking about you know massive amounts of real estate. And at this point, then this was when uh, they were, they being the I, I assume the British colonial authorities wanted to federalize Canada into one country. Then that's essentially the backdrop. Well, essentially the backdrop. I mean, the uh, confederation was driven. There were domestic Canadian ish reasons behind con the confederation of those colonies in 1867. But there was no question as well that the British government uh, were supportive of it. And they were supportive of it for a number of reasons. Uh, one of which was they thought it would give, it give the area greater defensibility against uh, what had turned into an American uh, powerful military, military uh, power uh, in the post-Civil War period. And, uh, and so they, they wanted to uh, you know, give their North American colonies a better chance of defending themselves. But there were, but as I say, there were also um, domestic Canadian issues or colonial issues that uh, were behind the Confederation as well. And the Métis, I think you said they were called. The, the Métis were were against this because they they didn't have any. Um, they they wanted their land rights to be protected and so on, and that wasn't forthcoming. Yeah, they weren't necessarily against it. Um, they they were they were suspicious of it and they wanted the guarantees up front and it and in fairness to uh, the Canadian government at the time they had a number of issues on their plate it's it's a brand new country uh, one of the first things that, that happens after confederation is that one of the provinces wants out almost immediately one of the provinces wants to get out so the prime minister sir john a macdonald is dealing with that He's also dealing with uh, the threat of Irish-American veterans of the Civil War uh, raiding north into Canada, uh, which begins about 1864 and continues until 1871. So he's got a number of issues on his plate. And, and one of the things you have to remember is that the Red River settlement is a long way away. But there's no question that MacDonald miscalculates and he doesn't realize the scope of the opposition. Uh, and it's not necessarily that they are, you know, completely opposed to the concept, but they want they want their guarantees. They want their guarantees regarding land rights and they want guarantees regarding culture. And when did this move or how did this move then from a political debate into something that required a military expedition? Well, it's likely that Canada once they had taken control, would have sent a military force west anyway. Um, you know, they're going to want to establish Canadian law and they're going to want to defend what essentially is the Can a Canadian, new Canadian empire uh, in the west. They're going to want to defend it. Um, there had been two prior military forces sent to the settlement, once in 1846 and again in 1857. Uh, smaller than the expeditionary force that we're talking about in, in 1870. Um, but so it's likely that a force would have been sent. What happens is that when, when the Métis, uh, under, their, under the, the gentleman who rises to become their leader, a fellow by the name of Louis Riel, when they ultimately do manage to hammer out a settlement. Uh, it's difficult uh, at the at the settlement itself because uh, you have the um, uh, 
you have other groups at the at the settlement as well that don't necessarily have the same concerns that the Métis do. Uh, but once they manage to sort out an agreement, they then send representatives to Ottawa and a negotiated settlement is achieved. Uh, but in the interim, an event has happened at the settlement that kind of changes the fabric. Uh, in March of 1870, Real sanctions the execution of a prisoner uh, at, at Fort Gar Upper Fort Gary, which is the HBC's uh, headquarters in, at the Red River Settlement. A, a guy by the name of Thomas Scott, who is apparently a difficult individual, you know, whether or not that justifies him being executed is a different story, but it changes the tone of everything. And even though a, settle a negotiated settlement is achieved, there's an uproar in Ontario that they want a military expedition sent to avenge the death of Scott. And so backing, backing up regarding the military expedition, early on, once MacDonald, the prime minister, gets wind that something's going on, he starts to think in terms of sending a military expedition. And some of his uh, early comments are quite belligerent. But the Canadians just do not have the expertise to do it by themselves. And so um, they need the British to participate. Now, the British prime minister at the time is Gladstone. And he is not really interested in sending a military expedition to the West. And neither is his foreign, his uh, colonial secretary, Lord Granville. So they're very, very reluctant. So they actually impose on the Canadian government a number of conditions for British participation. And one of them is that we're not doing it alone. We'll send, you know, we'll send a small force, but you will send a larger Canadian force that will accompany it. But we're not sending any British troops west until uh, you've reached an agreement with the people at the Red River Settlement and the Hudson's Bay Company lands have been transferred to Canadian authority. So those are the conditions. Uh, so it, it's an interesting thing. And, and, you know, I know we've talked about this a little bit. Uh, what is it? Is, what is the expedition? Is it a force to um, establish Canadian law and order in the West? Or is it a punitive expedition? And certainly in the minds of the British government, it's a force. It's just to establish law and order after it has been achieved. But the men, the English speaking members of the Canadian forces have a very different approach. They're, they're, they, most of them have signed on because they want to avenge Scott's death. And the closer the force gets to the Red River settlement, and I, we'll talk about the commander of the British force as we go through this, but Garnet Wolseley, the closer he gets, the more if you believe his later writings and, you know, and he wrote, you know, fairly, a fairly long time after the event, uh, you get the impression he thinks he's leading a punitive expedition. Well, before, before we dive into the expedition too much, one thing I was interested, there's two people I'd love a little mini potted history or potted biography from if about, if possible. Firstly, why did people care about Scott? You mentioned he had a bit of a reputation as a troublemaker, but why, why was he important enough that English-speaking Canadians were mad about his death? And secondly, Louis Riel, could you give us a paragraph or two about, about who he was and where he came from? 
Okay, I guess we should maybe start with uh, Louis Riel. Then uh, Louis Riel was was born in the Red River Settlement. Um, his father, a generation earlier, also Louis Riel, had been involved in the uh, de jure, uh, or I should say, de facto breaking of the Hudson's Bay Company's monopoly for trade in the Northwest. Um, uh, but Real had been, Louis the son, had been seen as, um, you know, a fairly intelligent uh, boy. And so he'd been sent to Quebec to, to study. He, he had not completed his studies, but then he'd gone into business, but he'd gone to work. Uh, and then around 1870, he came back to the settlement just as events were starting to uh, kick off a little bit. And so he rose to the leadership. And I, I think what you can say about Riel is that he was determined um, to, he had a vision of, of what he was looking to accomplish and he was determined to push it through. Um, so that's the, that's his story up to the Red River Expedition. Um, we can maybe, I don't know if you want to talk now about what happened subsequently or where we talk about that when we get to the end of the story. I think let's, let's focus on that at the end, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And then Scott was, Scott was, uh, he was an orange man. Um, he had come to the settlement in, I think it was in 1868. In, in 1868 and 1869, a number of uh, surveyors uh, and then road builders uh, came into the settlement. And this is what kind of set things off a little bit because they weren't very respectful of, of the existing uh, uh, landed rights of the, of the Métis there. And so that got the Métis uh, very concerned about what the future was going to bring. Scott was, he was quite a belligerent guy with um, the road work, with his, with his boss. I mean, I, I think he, at one point, he assaulted his, his boss on the road works at one point. He was apparently a big, blustery fellow. Uh, but there were, without going into all of the details of what happened at the settlement over the winter of 1869 and 1870, um, he found himself twice taken prisoner and held at Upper Fort Gary. Uh, the first time was um, he escaped. And the second time um, he apparently was just very, very difficult to deal with. Um, he was not a particularly well-known figure, but he was used by uh, the Canada First movement in uh, in Ontario as sort of a, the, a figurehead or a martyr uh, to sort of rally rally the troops and say, "Hey, look, we need to we need to go and do something about this." They've they've killed you know the Métis have have killed uh, one of ours for lack of a better term, and so he's a rallying cry. Uh, and the Canada First movement is their vision is to populate the what is going to become the Canadian West with Anglo-Saxon settlers. And so this is their opportunity to rally the troops in Ontario. 
Right, I see. So, so that's great. I feel we've got a good understanding of the background now. So then, how did um, Sagan at Walsley get involved, and then what units did he did he manage to pull together for this expedition? Okay, so I'll just backtrack one little bit because there's kind of a there's another. Most people don't know much about the Red River Red River uh, expedition, but if they do, they might know that Garnet Walsley was the leader. Kind of one of the unsung. Uh, architects of an already unknown campaign is a guy by the name of Lieutenant General James Lindsay. Now, what happens just to set the background uh, as Canada is requesting the use of um, British troops or the participation of British troops in the expedition, um, the British government has announced that they're withdrawing the garrison from Canada. Um, so it's not it's not particularly the best time. To, these are all part of the uh, army reforms that are uh, the Cardwell reforms that are beginning at this time. And they're not, the, the British are not going to withdraw from what they consider imperial outposts. So they're going to keep a garrison at Halifax because it's a naval base, it's an imperial naval base. Um, so the senior officer in North America has the position has now been transferred to Halifax. But with the agreement for uh, British military participation in the expedition, the war office gets nervous that uh, they won't, the, the evacuation of the garrison won't take place on schedule. They've decided that their troops are out by the end of 1870. Uh, and so Lindsay is sent to Montreal to make sure that everything goes according to plan. So Lindsay is uh, extremely competent, um, but he arrives to find that a document has been put together by Wolseley, uh, essentially laying out the operation for him. Wolseley's already in Canada. He's been in Canada since the end of 1861. He's, sent, he's been sent to Canada as uh, in the aftermath of the Trent incident, uh, at the start of the American Civil War. Uh, and and as, a, as a, res a response to that, the British sent, sent about 10,000 troops to their possessions in, in British North America. So he's still there in 1870. And by this point, he's established himself as an extremely competent, forward-thinking, reforming individual. And when, when you factor in that he's also put this uh, document together, laying out how this expedition needs to be carried out, he's the logical choice to lead it. And Lindsay, it's one of the first things that Lindsay does after he arrives, he appoints Wolseley. So you also asked about uh, the troops involved. So from the British perspective, it's quite easy. Uh, they just designate one of the battalions that they've that is still part of the garrison in in Canada, and that's the first battalion, King's Royal Rifle Corps, the 60th Rifles. Um, and there's also uh, an artillery Royal Artillery contingent uh, with four brass seven pounder uh, yeah brass seven pounder guns. And there's a Royal Engineer contingent. Where it gets a little murky is given that the Canadians have been the driving force behind this. Uh, when Lindsay arrived, not very happy to find out that the Canadians have done nothing to determine what 
what military force they're going to send. Remember, the British government has stipulated that a larger Canadian force must accompany the British. The Canadian military at this point, uh, it's a long story of the evolution of the, of the Canadian military, but you have a number of what's called active militia battalions around the country. Uh, Lindsay, when he arrives, he goes to the Canadian militia department in no uncertain terms says, you know, how come you haven't done anything? You're, you're the driving force behind this. And there's a regiment in Canada called the Royal Canadian Rifles. It's actually a regiment of the British Army, and it's, but it's permanently stationed in Canada. It's going to be disbanded uh, after the withdrawal. And so Lindsay says to the militia department, why don't we just send the Royal Canadian Rifles? They're ready to go. And the Canadian Militia Department rejects this and said, and they're saying, no, we're going to we're going to raise two battalions of rifles, one in Quebec and one in Ontario. Lindsay's not Lindsay doesn't like the idea of this, but, you know, he doesn't have any control over it. So uh, they uh, they then go through the process of raising these two battalions. No problem in getting men in Ontario. The whole Scott issue is causing uh, is causing them to, uh, you know, they've got an abundance of men wanting to go. Uh, Quebec is a different story. And there's two issues with Quebec. One is not a lot of the French-speaking militia are willing to go. But there's, there's the other problem is English-speaking militia members in Quebec don't want to serve under French-speaking officers. So uh, it's, a, it's problematic. Uh, it's not going anywhere. So Lindsay steps in. He uh, basically designates about 120 men from the Royal Canadian Rifles to go, and he recruits the rest in, uh, in Ontario. Uh, so there's three battalions. They're small battalions, seven companies each, about 350 men in, e in each of the three battalions and plus the other attached forces. Okay, so it's it's a it's a fairly strong force to have to navigate uh, such a long way across country, and I guess that's a great place to sort of talk about the challenges that they were going to face, and the logistical issues involved. Yeah, well, it's they're going to travel uh, over twelve hundred miles in total. The last five hundred and fifty miles are going to be across country. So once they have managed to uh, get the Canadian troops into a position where they can go, they're going to travel by rail from Toronto to a place called Collingwood on Lake Huron. They're then going to go by steamer from Lake Huron to Thunder Bay on Lake, on Lake Superior. Uh, and then there's going to be, a, there's a road, uh, and the road is going to go from Thunder Bay up to a place called Shebendown Lake. And once they get onto Shebendown Lake, they then, they've got, they've had these purpose-built rowboats, and they're going to row and portage and haul all their equipment across 550 miles of incredibly rough terrain. Um, with a total of 47 portages along the way, ranging in length from 100 yards to over a mile. So uh, I'm just going to cut in. What exactly is a portage? A portage is basically the land bit between the water bit. 
where you're going onto a different river, a different lake. And so you've got to unload the boats, haul them over, haul all the supplies over, uh, and then get the men and all their equipment over, get back in the boats, and then set off again. Um, extremely hard, physical, challenging work. Um, and not to mention the fact that when they're in their boats, um, it's not necessarily great conditions either. They could be, they could be running rapids or, or challenging uh, water conditions as well. So it's a, it's a very, very challenging uh, prospect. Part of the problem is that there's really no good routes between, between Canada as it exists in 1869 and the lands that are going to become the Canadian West. In some ways, that was intended by the Hudson's Bay Company, I, I don't think we have time to go back to the history, but the Hudson's Bay Company had a rival called the Northwest Company. And essentially, they fought a bit of a, a war between themselves in the Northwest. And finally, the British government had had enough and, and essentially forced a merger in 1821. So the route that the expedition will ultimately take is essentially the canoe highway of the Northwest Company. Uh, it's after 1821, it falls into disuse because the Hudson's Bay Company's model works best in isolation. So they, so their transport is from Hudson's Bay up the Hayes River onto Lake Winnipeg and then down to, uh, down to the Red River Settlement. So I'm interested to know, in the course of your research, are there many first-hand accounts of this journey? Were you able to really get a sense of how difficult it was? Oh, yeah. There's, there were, the first-hand accounts come from, um, there were quite a number of people who, who participated, who left accounts. Um, there's nothing really from the British enlisted men. There's some accounts from the officers. Uh, and then there's accounts from some of the Canadians, whether they're enlisted or officers. They, they were, I think they were more literate than the British enlisted men. Uh, so they left accounts. But then there's also the field diaries of, the, uh, of the office, some of the officers. I was able to go through a number of those. So, yeah, there's lots of uh, good information about the conditions. Interestingly, um, the force did not, once they took to the rowboats, the force did not travel as a compact force. They were spread out over about 150 miles. So you get different accounts from different individuals when they're passing the same place. Um, if you understand what I mean, it, they don't have the same, they don't necessarily have the same experience as the guy who passed through a week earlier. Uh, so, so that, makes it kind of interesting as well so and let me just go sorry go ahead uh, just quickly paul i was interested to know you say the column was very very spread out was there any fear during the journey that they could be attacked or did they know that there was no chance they were going to be attacked en route because it just strikes me that if you were the meti and if you were very aggressive minded you could potentially have wiped this column out in in small pieces during their journey but was that was that never an issue well, that's a great question. Um, they looked at 
first of all, Wolseley is extremely organized and he's planned this to the nth degree. Um, they look at essentially three possible opponents during the journey. First of all, they're always nervous about the Fenians. Uh, the day they land at uh, Thunder Bay, there, are, uh, there is a battle fought on the Quebec frontier between Fenian raiders and Canadian militia. Uh, so the Fenians are real, uh, but they never, and, and step measures were taken to prevent or to fend off any Fenian uh, attacks, but no, the, the Fenians didn't have anything planned. Um, just, just on that point, for anyone who's listening who who might not be familiar with the term Fenian, essentially that's uh, Irish American Civil War veterans, right? That's right, and their and their goal is to put pressure on Britain to free Ireland by attacking other parts of the British Empire. Right. Uh, so, so that's one of the perceived uh, threats. And I will add that in 1871, the Fenians do raid up to, or try to raid up towards the Red River settlement. Um, the second potential uh, opponent is uh, it's there's worries that the First Nations people who are in the path of the expedition might choose to oppose it. Um, they 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 sent a political officer on ahead, and he was a, he he was able to come back to Wolseley, who was who was traveling out and assure him that there were not there wasn't wasn't going to be any opposition from them. As far as the Métis, I mean, um, the Métis there was a, a political deal had been done, uh, and so the Métis I don't think. I, there's no evidence that the Métis ever intended to oppose the arrival of the force. Uh, but Wolseley certainly took measures and worried about, uh, the, about the potential of it. Uh, he sort of uh, loaded the forward elements of his force. He took he took his artillery with him or two of his four guns. He left two of the guns at a fort he, he had built at Thunder Bay, but he took two of the guns and they were with the forward elements of the force. He had, uh, they traveled in what was called boat brigades, which was about essentially six boats in each boat brigade. And the boat brigade is a, is a it's not a military term. It's a, a holdover from the, from the heyday of the fur trade. And, uh, so he, he had three of his boat brigades up front loaded, and, and it was the, uh, the 60th rifles that were the vanguard of the expedition. And, uh, and just in case he ran into any trouble, he was always wary of that. With hindsight, and I think he did the right thing, but with hindsight, we know that there was little chance of, of uh, a physical or military opposition. And the real challenge of the expedition was the elements. And what do you think Wolseley did particularly well during this expedition? You know, because it's obviously, and maybe we'll talk more about this in a minute, but this was the beginning of quite a stellar career. Yeah. Looking back, what do you think Wolseley did well? And maybe what did he not do so well? Well, I think logist, I mean, the logistics, he got the logistics and the planning uh, just right. I mean, they, the boats were exceedingly uh, loaded down with supplies because essentially once they got into the wilderness, 
they were going to they were they had to be self-sufficient um there were i i think I, we need to add that there were um guides and boatmen that accompanied the force these had been hired by the canadian public works department wolseley didn't have a lot of good things to say about many of them but he had uh nothing but positive things to say about Ir the a group of iroquois boatmen and guides that had been hired from villages around montreal uh, so he, he got, Wolseley got the logistics and the planning uh, spot on. Um, we haven't talked about, and maybe we will in a minute, about sort of the three challenges before that they, that they overcame before they set out uh, on Shebendown Lake and in their journey across the wilderness. Uh, and one of those was the problems of the, the road from Thunder Bay to Shebendown Lake. And at one point, uh, Wolseley took the decision uh, that he was going to haul his boats up the river. The road was, was to be built to bypass a very, very challenging river. And the road just wasn't getting the job done. So he decided to haul the boats up the river. It was controversial. The Canadian public worksman who was overseeing the construction of the road and had overseen the construction of the boats was very much opposed to this move, but I think Wolseley got that right. Um, things that maybe Wolseley uh, didn't get right, uh, a little bit of uh, maybe hubris here and there. There was an incident um, on, uh, they got to a place along the way called Lake of the Woods, which was which is quite a large lake with a great many islands. And Wolseley had uh, delayed his move for a few days at a place called by the name of Fort Francis. Fort Francis was a Hudson's Bay Company post, and Wolseley had decided to set up an advanced base there. And so he, he delayed there a few days to make sure that that was done to his satisfaction. So this meant that the forwards arrived at Lake of the Woods and great wind and for you know for one of probably the few times in the expedition the troops unfurled their sails on the boats and they just raced across the lake to a place called rat portage and which is the site of like modern day kenora ontario uh and um they uh by the time wolseley arrived a storm had blown up and so he was forced to take shelter on an island uh, in the in Lake of the Woods, and after a couple of days, he was really wanted to get going. And uh, his Iroquois guide said, "No, it's still too rough." Uh, well, the, they were traveling by canoe rather than the, the larger rowboats. And they also had a gig, so he set out without a guide in the gig, and he got lost. Uh, and uh, by the time he he met he. He managed to bump into a First Nations family, and they led him in to, uh, into uh, Rat Portage. Uh, but he was, uh, the alarm bells were ringing uh, by this point because they thought, you know, the, the lead elements of the expedition thought that the, the commander had uh, disappeared into nowhere. So <laughs> uh, Garner Wolseley, arrogant and showing hubris, you do shock me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, uh, great leader. Uh, the men apparently uh, were devoted to him. Uh, but yeah, definitely a bit of bit of arrogance on the part of uh, Sir Garnet. 
I mean, uh, we're going off on a slight tangent, but, uh, you know, one of my interests, as I'm sure you're aware, is the Anglo-Zulu War. And pretty much uh, everything so gone at Wolseley writes about everybody is he's he just really dislikes everybody around him generally you know uh, he was yeah. he was very very annoyed at Chard and Bromhead and you know their VCs at Rourke's Drift and he just seemed to generally dislike most people I don't know if that comes out in in the Red River expedition it does his his arrogance I mean and his arrogance definitely does come out um it's interesting that uh, he was hoping to not just appointed commander of the force. He also wanted to be appointed uh, lieutenant governor of the new territory. Uh, but the Canadian government decided to go in a different direction. Um, so when he arrived at, at uh, Fort Garry, um, Louis Rial was still in residence at the fort, but I think he'd gotten possibly gotten wind of the belligerent nature that the expedition was showing when you consider that they were actually arriving at a settlement where a political deal had already been done. So, so he, he made himself scarce as the expedition was approaching the fort, which I think was a wise move on his part. Um, Wolseley chose not to go in pursuit uh, and I think that I think that was the right thing to do. I'm just not 100% sure on if what Wolseley's motiv real motivation was. Was it that he what he later wrote was that he had no civil authority, his military uh, uh, task had been completed, so there was no reason for him to go in pursuit of uh, of uh, Real, or was it which you know, I, I wonder, was it because he was a little miffed that he didn't, they didn't make him lieutenant governor as well? <laughs> you know, well, I think, I think that's a good point then just to sort of jump forward to the arrival. So firstly, can you give us a sense of how long the journey took and then just sum up what happened when they finally arrived? Sure. The first British troops landed at Thunder Bay 94 days uh, before the first Brit before the British troops arrived at Fort Garry. Uh, so, but a lot of that time was spent on the road, work, uh, trying to get the road uh, from uh, to Shebendown Lake in order. Um, and that's that's actually the the road is probably the biggest controversy of the expedition. Uh, but anyway, so it's ninety four days from that from landing until they get there. I'll add that it rains sometimes torrentially on 45 of those days. Um, and then we factor in the insects, which anybody who leaves uh, a record of it definitely talks about the insects. There's one, uh, I think, quite interesting story. Uh, one of the officers who tells a pretty good story, uh, one of the British officers, um, they had uh, uh, mosquito oil, which apparently was useless and probably... Uh, harmful to them because it contained creosote oh. and uh and he was in his tent one night and he, he there was a bottle of something next to him and he doused himself in it to try and fend off all all the mosquitoes in the morning he discovered it was a bottle of sauce oh. um so, <laughs> so he'd probably made himself even more attractive to the mosquitoes uh but yeah so 94 days um to get there um when they arrive, um, they arrive at a place called Fort Alexander. 
which is at the mouth of near the mouth of the Winnipeg River. And from there, they're going to enter Lake Winnipeg and then they're going to essentially hang left and then enter the Red River. And at four, by the time Wolseley arrives at Fort Alexander, all of the British troops are there. And as he's, he's traveling by canoe and he's passed through two, the two leading Canadian boat brigades, he later writes about uh, information that he's, that he's receiving from English speaking residents of the settlement, you know, to, you know, hurry up, you know, and get here because we don't know what's going to happen. He writes this quite a long time afterwards. And, you know, you, you got to, it's not that there hadn't been issues at the settlement over that winter, but is he a good story? You know, you know, the traditional story, you know, the, uh, uh, the settlement under siege, and I've got to get there, you know, before, you know, before something bad happens. If you, if you listen to some of the really reliable British officer sources who are with him, they don't think that there's going to be any form of opposition. And if he really thought there was going to be some form of opposition, I would have expected that he would have waited for those two Canadian brigades to arrive, but he didn't. He set off uh, and he gets into the Red River settlement and a storm, a, a massive storm is about to hit. Uh, and so for the last couple of days, uh, the troops, as they make their way up the Red River, they're getting lashed with rain. Um, they, he, he wants to make sure that nobody at the settlement uh, knows that they're there because when he arrives at lower Fort Gary, of course, if there's an upper Fort Gary, there's going to be a lower Fort Gary. When he arrives at lower Fort Gary, um, he's told by the Hudson's Bay company man there that nobody knows. They, they don't realize that the force has gotten, gotten there yet. Uh, so he wants to make sure of that. So anybody who comes from the direction of upper Fort Gary is going to stay. They're not going back to let on. The last night they spend in a driving rainstorm, the troops out in the open. They, they get back in the boats because by this point, the road is a morass of mud. They get back in the boats the following morning. They row to within about two miles of the upper fort. Um, they get out, they're in, um, they get into battle formation and they approach and they approach the fort. And, uh, a lot of the accounts speak of, you know, wondering whether they're going to be fired on. But the really reliable officer accounts, I don't think they really expect that there's going to be any kind of an action. And as I mentioned, I, the Real and his, the few supporters that are with him at this point, uh, they figure discretion better part of valor and they make themselves scarce. And that's probably wise. So that's pretty much the end of the expedition, is it? Nothing, there's, there's no further, um, you know, they don't have to advance and, and take any other towns or villages. It's kind of that done and dusted at that point. It's done and dusted, basically, from the British perspective. Uh, you have to remember that the British have imposed on themselves. Uh, they want to get in and out in a season, which is a challenging, which is, which is challenging. It's challenging because... The ice on uh, Lake Superior doesn't open up until the beginning of May. So they can't even get to Thunder Bay until, until the beginning of May. And then they get delayed 
by the road. They arrive at Thunder Bay on, they start landing around May 25th. Um, they don't set out uh, on Shebendown Lake until July 16th, the forward elements. That's the amount of time that, remember I talked about that road being the biggest controversy. And, and my book goes into a, a great deal of length on the controversy of the road and also a couple of other pinch points prior to that, that uh, Wolseley would claim had delayed him. The road definitely delayed him. I don't think that the other pinch points did. From the British perspective, they're always looking at the clock because if they're going to get in and out in, in a season, it's a challenge. So anyway, the British arrive. Um, the Canadians start to filter in over the beginning in the next few days. And then it's about two and a half weeks before all of the Canadians have arrived. Um, the British are on their way back in a matter of days. Uh, Wolseley's there for 18 days. Uh, and then he's, he's making his way back to Canada as well, because he's the British, the British troops are leaving. The Canadian troops are going to stay. They're going to be the new garrison. And that's where you get into some of the controversies that follow. Uh, there's no question that some of the Canadian troops, uh, there's acts of revenge against some of the Métis. Um, how widespread it is depends on where you sit on the, on the spectrum of this issue today. On the Métis side, they talk about a reign of terror. Um, on the Canadian side uh, at the time, you know, I think there was an admission that there were some incidents, but that the Canadian troops, some of the firsthand accounts, quite critical of these incidents as well, uh, but certainly they don't see it as being widespread. But there's no question that, you know, there were some of the Canadian troops did not behave in the way that they should have. Uh, but the British are gone. The British are gone very quickly. By, by the beginning of October, uh, all of the British troops are back in Quebec waiting to be re-embarked for, for Britain or somewhere else. And Wolseley is gone at the beginning of October. He gets a message from Lindsay saying, suggesting that they travel back to England on the same ship. And so he, Wolseley doesn't even stop in Toronto. He just, uh, he just blasts on through so he can make the ship with Lindsay and he's the man of the hour. I mean, he, it's a, uh, he's, you know, he's pulled it off. It's a logistic masterpiece. Uh, uh, he's going, he's moving on to bigger, bigger things and he wants to get going. So that, that's, that's a great point then to ask about Wolseley. So Wolseley, as, as we've mentioned, went on to become a very big name, uh, in, in the British military. Do you think this was, people talk about, you know, his, his, uh, his campaign in Ashanti in modern day Ghana and the so-called Ashanti ring of officers who were around yeah. him, who he then took, you know, forward with him. But do you think this was the beginning of, of Wolseley's big steps? And you mentioned in our in our chat beforehand that some of the officers with him in this campaign were, you know, stayed with him for a long time. That's right. I think there there's some um, there is some research being done into the rings of the British Army at this time, um, and uh, I think it it needs to be rethought a little bit because it normally is a shanty that is seen as the beginning of the Wolseley ring. I think you have to look at. Uh, 
at uh, Red River as being the, the beginning of it, because you've got Bowler, he's on Red River. You've got Butler, who also plays a role in South Africa. Um, he's on Red River. McCalmont, the, uh, the fellow uh, who doused himself in the sauce and has a, what could have been a potentially career-limiting move in the aftermath of Red River, he serves with him again. And there's, there's quite a number of the officers um, uh, who, will, who will serve with Wolseley again in, in his future campaigns and form part of his ring. Brilliant. And then, so moving on then, why do you think this campaign is, is worth uh, still researching and remembering? What is, it, what is it that fascinates you and you think is still relevant for historians now? Well, I think uh, for, one, like for one thing, it's the last British army campaign in North America. You know, the, Brit the British Army has been there for a long time. and They've been involved in a, in a great many campaigns. This is the last one. I mean, there's no, there's no shooting in it, but it, you know, it's a campaign of considerable accomplishment. Uh, uh, and it's the last. I think also it's, uh, Wolseley's, it's Wolseley's first independent command. He's, he's demonstrated uh, prior to coming to Canada, he's demonstrated recklessness and great bravery in various campaigns in which he's been involved. He's an officer who's risen solely on merit. He, he, I mean, in an era of purchase, he doesn't have any money to purchase. So he's had to advance on merit. In North America, in Canada, he's become something of a military thinker, you know, and, uh, and he's created a reputation of of competence red river just cements that and puts him on the path to bigger and better things which will ultimately lead to his position as commander-in-chief and then finally from a canadian perspective from a domestic canadian perspective um the red river expedition you know sort of is the final uh, piece of the creation of the Canadian West. The Can it's going to have some pretty significant ramifications for the people who are living there already. It's going to see an end of the way of life for a great many of them, but it's also going to see the uh, opening of the West to European colonization, which is you know only going to mushroom, and it's going to it's it creates Western Canada. Brilliant. And one last question, more, more because uh, for personal interest. Now, you and I started speaking in the comments section under one of my videos on YouTube about James Langley Dalton, uh, yeah. who, was, who was with the commissariat in, in the Anglo-Zulu War. He won a VC of Rourke's Drift. And uh, we had a small debate about whether Dalton was, in fact, part of the Red River expedition. I understand you've looked into that a bit more and, and you might be able to give us a bit more background. Is that possible? I Yes, it is. Um, I wish, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, um, I did a great deal of research into Red River. Uh, and uh, one, of, uh, one of the reviews of my book described it as a forensic analysis, which I was quite pleased with. Um, but I'm still finding out new bits of information, which is why, you know, when you said, when you, I saw your comment that he was on, on Red River, I asked for a citation and it's a bit vague, uh, except so here's what I've found. He was definitely in Canada 
he was in Canada from 1868 to 1871. Um, he was in the Army Service Corps from April 1st, 1870, which is essentially when the Army Service Corps is created. The whole logistics and supply of the British Army in 1869, 1870 is going through um, a uh, considerable revamp. Um, the Red River Expedition had 12 Army Service Corps uh, people attached to it. That doesn't necessarily mean that they were with the leading British troops. Um, doesn't necessarily mean that they traveled with the troops. They could have been involved with the supply across the Great Lakes. But I think there's a very good chance, given that he's in the Army Service Corps, I doubt that there were too, too many Army Service Corps uh, members in Canada at that time. There's a good chance that he's either with the expedition or he is work, doing work for it. He doesn't have the Red River clasp for the Canada's uh, General Service Medal. But that's not surprising. The Canada General's General Service Medal is created by the Canadian government in 1899. And then you apply for the medal and either there, there were three clasps associated with it, one of which was the Red River clasp. He's dead in 1886. So, so he's not going to be in a position to apply. So I don't think you can, you can look at the lack of the, of the medal and say, well, then he wasn't there. I, I think that that's, that's irrelevant. It, he wouldn't have had the ability to. So I think, yeah, you, you know, despite all the research I did, um, a new piece of information. Brilliant. I'm glad to have been a small part of that because uh, I, I actually had just based my research on what I'd read. And as I went back through my sources, I thought, actually, I can't find, a, a, you know, exactly where this information has come from. So it was great that you were able to put in that extra research. Yeah. So thanks for that. Yeah, my, my pleasure. His name does not crop up in any of the documents that I read. But then again, he's a, he's a staff sergeant, and then, he, and then he becomes a quartermaster sergeant. He was a staff sergeant from April 1st, 1870, and a quartermaster sergeant from July 1st. He's probably not going to be mentioned. Uh, the only, the, the, there were two or three officers who were, who were, the supply chain that were mentioned in the documents that I saw. A sergeant is probably not going to be mentioned. Yeah. And then finally, then just to wrap up, you've obviously written a book about the, about the campaign. I see it over your, over your right. I did, I, you know, very, you know, strategically placed there. <laughs> I just wondered for anyone who's listening and wants to find out more, can you tell them a little bit about the book and where they might be able to get it? Um, it's available uh, either for, through the publisher, Helion and Company. It's on their website. Uh, uh, you can the book is available to order, but on Helion you can also get an. It's available in ebook form as well. It's also available uh, at Amazon, uh, and uh, yeah, it's out there. I, I, it was fun because you know I'm. This, this is my first book. I've got two other books that I'm working on at the moment. But um, I was in a bookstore in Victoria uh, yesterday and they had a copy of it. So I, I went up to them and said, hey, I'm the author of that book. Do you want me to sign it? And they said, sure. So that was kind of a, a nice kick. From Interestingly, they never asked for proof as that, that I actually was the author. <laughs> 
I might start doing that. I might just go to bookshops and say I'm the author of the book and start signing them and see if anyone asks me for proof. Apparently they don't, or at least they didn't in my case. <laughs> Brilliant. So there you have it, guys. If you're looking for me over the next few days, I'll be in your local bookstore pretending to be Ian Knight or John LeBand. Just ask me to sign their books. <laughs> On a serious note though guys, if you want that promo code for helion.co.uk to get Paul's book with a 20% discount, it's journey, all capital letters, and then the number 20, the two, two and zero, journey 20, and you'll get a 20% discount. That's available until the 3rd of February 2022. Please do subscribe and also consider signing up for my, my regular dispatch over at redcoathistory.com. If you do, then you'll receive a monthly newsletter crammed with links to great military history content. You'll also get a free book on the Zulu War. If you're particularly generous, you can also support the show by donating to its upkeep over at ko-fi, ko-fi.com slash redcoathistory. Any donations will be used to pay for hosting and research. Anyway, guys, hopefully I'll soon be bringing you that episode on the end of the Peninsula War and the invasion of France that I've been promising for ages. And also coming up in the near future is an episode on Kitchener. Your country needs you, that guy. And also on the Shangani Patrol and the birth of Rhodesia. I think you'll find those fascinating. <laughs>